Welcome back to the fourth episode of the Sporting Backbone podcast. I'm John and Kian, Will and Dan, and we're joined by Steve Irving, who is um, the Dartford chairman. Would you like Would you like to tell us a little bit about what what your role entails at Dartford, Steve? Well, as, as chairman, it's just really overseeing uh, board direction. We've got a board of eight directors altogether. Um, I'm very fortunate that we've got a good team behind us at, on a day to day basis that that run things because uh, living 280 miles away from the ground is uh, is a challenge sometimes, but um, it's really just overseeing everything, being a figurehead, um, uh, decision maker, along with others in the you know within the board, um, as I say, of the eight of us. So it's um, it's not a difficult role to be honest with you. How did you come to be the chairman? You started in the early nineties, is that right? Uh, as as a director, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. As a supporter, I first started supporting Dartford in nineteen seventy one, and uh, in the late eighties, the club was in some difficulty with the previous board of directors. And we were on the supporters committee at the time. The three of us are still on the board now. Um, it was a rescue case, really, to keep the club alive. So in 1992, um, Dave Skinner, my co-chairman, Norman Grimes, my, one of my best friends, myself, set up a new company to run the club to keep it alive. And from 1993, four season, um, we carried on as uh, as directors running the club in the Kent League. And that uh, carries on to this day. And I've been chairman of the club, co-chairman, since... 2014. So, so what changes have you seen in that time? Um, so from 2014 to now, obviously you've had COVID and a lot of other things. Yeah, I mean, what we've tried to change, if if, it, if we look at it that way, is um, giving some stability to the club moving forward. Um, after so many years homeless, we came to Prince's Park in 2006, so that gave us the springboard really for the future of the club, and um, it's just been a gradual. Uh, job to, to to keep the finances rolling in, to increase uh, income, uh, to allow a bigger budget for the manager to, to spend, um, and just making sure that the structure of the club is strong moving forward to allow us to get back to the National League and be able to stay there this time. You say so many years homeless. Um, so before 2006, did you uh, have to rely on other clubs like, I guess, them letting you use their pitch, etc. How 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 was life as I guess a homeless club? Uh, as a homeless club, it's a really really tough challenge. Um, it started in 1993 when we ground shared with Trey Wanderers, and then we moved on to Erith and Belvedere until their stand burnt down. And then we moved on to uh, Perfleet Thurrock Football Club, who unfortunately are no longer in existence. From there, we moved to uh, Gravesend and Northfleet, now Ebsleet United, and we had three or four years there. Short visit back to Thurrock before our new ground was ready. Uh, and then we moved in in 2006. So 14 years was really tough because obviously with no uh, home ground, you have limited opportunities for income. You've got match day income. Um, sponsorship is as good as it gets. So we were really struggling for a long time. So how did it come to the point of you being homeless as a club? Uh, as I alluded to earlier, uh, the previous board of directors at Watling Street in, in you know, a ground that we'd had since 1921, um, Maidstone United came to ground share in, in 1987. And unfortunately, they took control of everything. And uh, it eventually meant that Maidstone United went out of business and they ceased to be. Uh, fortunately, with the work that we put in to keep things alive, Dartford did not go out of business. Um, so it was just uh, overspending, poor management, 
some other things I won't go into that you know we know of that caused it, but it was pretty much just poor management of the club at the time. And how pivotal has the move to Princess Park been to your success since 2006? Absolutely essential. Uh, it gives us the stability now of our own facility. Dartford Borough Council, uh, for the last 17 years, have been superb backers. Um, Dave Skinner and myself uh, and others met with the council for many, many, many years beforehand. And it was only in 2004 when Jeremy Kite, the current leader of council, uh, came to us and said, we finally got something we think will work. So uh, within 18 months, the facility was built. So once you've got the foundations of your own ground, you're pretty much in control of your own destiny. Um, and as I said, we've really tried to make the club stable, successful uh, and sustainable, really, long term. Um, obviously, Prince Park is much more than a football stadium. You've got obviously the big 3G pitch, the golf course, the, the mini pitch as well at the back. How important has that been to building, I suppose, the community assets that you know a local football club is, is has to kind of really focus on, especially in non-league football? Well, again, it's absolutely essential. Um, what we tried to do when we were homeless was to keep the club uh, ticking along with the youth team. So each year we would add a new youth team. We started off, the club actually survived as an under 18. And then we we added sides for under 16, moving down to under 12. Um, every single side within the club was playing outside of the borough, um, which, you know, that again proved very difficult to coordinate everything. Um, and now we've got the facilities we have at Prince's Park. You can pretty much have uh, the, the senior sides in the academy, the junior sides within the youth development centre, the women and the development girls all playing at Prince's Park on either the main pitch, the 3G or on the mini pitches. So it was essential. You guys as a club are, um, I'd say, at the forefront of your women's section with the women, the, obviously women doing really well at the minute. How much of a focus has that been for you and your other um, the co-chairman in the nine years since you went, since you guys came in? We've had a women's section previously, but it, it, at the time it, it really didn't work. And um, I think because of the structure we had at the time and not being in, in Dartford was very difficult. So it was, um, it, it fell by the wayside. And then in 2000 and uh, where are we? 2018, I think it was, we had the guys that were managing aside and another club came to us and said look we're, we're struggling uh we, we're at a ground we don't want to be at and uh, we'd like to come along and play for as Dartford Football Club so um we had a ready-made team of girls to to play for Dartford who had been at this previous club together for many years before and they were really a strong outfit uh strong friends um so it you know it was a it was a a very sensible decision to make at the time and it has proved to be brilliant because you know as a group of girls they've developed they've they've won cups for us they've uh, challenged for league championships and they've just been absolutely essential to the club and uh, a joy to be with not everybody within the football club perhaps has been as supportive um you know unfortunately there's, there's still a bit of a stereotype in in uh, in the, the world of football um, in certain age groups where women's football perhaps isn't perceived to be um, as good as, as it really is and it's something that I've always believed in. So, you know, it's taken a little bit of time to to convert one or two of the older 
people in, within the club that this is the way forward. But everybody's on board now and they get tremendous support, particularly when we can play them on the main stadium, which we uh, intend to do more and more. Am I right in thinking that Dartford are launching a girls' academy uh, in the upcoming future? Yeah, we've got um, the first trials in, in May. Um, uh, we're looking at, uh, at getting that developed and ready for next season. Uh, it, it, it's a real challenge, to be honest with you, because there are so many clubs around us now who are setting up girls' academies. And uh, I think you'll find with, with the boys, there's so many more that are interested in being educated and playing football. Where the girls, it's something new. So I think there's a smaller smaller pond to fish in, if you know what I mean. Um, but we're hopeful that we'll get enough to actually make it work. Would you say that uh, a big part in you know attracting players to, to the club and to the academy is the fact that you have a successful senior women's team and there is a genuine pathway there in place that you know, if you come at a sort of you know 16 to 18 age, there is, you know, with a couple of years of, of development and, of course, hard work and all that kind of thing that, you know, you really could be playing at a, a decent level of football. Yeah, no, I do think that is very true. Um, I think if there is any uh, stumbling block at the moment, we, for financial reasons, we do have a ground share with London City Lionesses who play in the WSL Championship. Um, they've been a very progressive club since they broke away from Millwall and uh, went independent. Uh, they have their own academy. So playing at that higher level, it has caused us one or two issues in terms of recruitment, uh, both at uh, you know, first team level and I think as well within the academy structure. So, you know, this is this is something new for us. We did try it once before, but it, it's, it wasn't the right time. But something pretty new for us now. And I'm hoping that uh, the facilities, that the club, the, uh, the potential for them to uh, move on up the levels with Dartford will be enough to bring them in. But uh, there are there are other issues out there that perhaps might stop that. So uh, we'll see how it goes. You, you mentioned there that you've had troubles getting certain people of certain generations and stuff to, in, to engage with the women's game. Have you had problems at the games as such? Because I know you've had crowd troubles at the men's games. Has the people not understanding it stayed at a distance. When I say we had problems, it was just a generational thing where um, this was something new and people perhaps just weren't ready for it. But I tell you what, the people within Dartford Football Club now on the whole are, are absolutely bought in to women's football. And we now have a pathway will be completed with the Girls Academy all the way from under sevens up to the women's first team. How are you trying to get more people young people involved in the club in both the men's and the women's section? That's a good question because I don't think we do well enough at that. It's a it's a massive job um, and I'm always looking for new ideas as to how we can bring younger people in. Uh, you know, from the top right the way through because even at board level, um, I, you know, I, I'm 63 now so I've been chairman 31 years. I am, where am I now? I think of the eight of us I'm the third youngest. So it, it, it's an issue from the top right the way through the club to attract younger people. Um, uh, as well as we're talking about women's football, we don't have a woman on the ball, which uh, we need to correct, and that will change in due course. Um, but it really is just making better use of social media, I think is the one thing. 
we've got a great social media team in at the moment who are in university uh, doing the courses through the FA's university scheme. So um, you guys, I'm sure, are aware of that. I know Kian will be. So we need to work harder. And I think in the last, this particularly this last season, where we've had a manager who's so much more willing to, to talk uh, more openly with the social media team, giving them some freedom, I think we've seen a massive improvement in our social media offering. I'm not saying it's, you know, right at the top of the game yet, but it's it's getting closer. And I just think we've got to work harder at uh, at making the best of our social media offering. So, so moving on to this weekend, I gather there's quite an important game going on. How, how are you feeling ahead of that? Uh, nervous as always. Uh, we don't have the best of records in in playoffs, but. Um, you know, we have to be confident. We played St Albans two weeks ago and uh, in a league game and beat them 2-1. We've not played them in a playoff before. Chelmsford were the uh, opponents for St Albans in the quarterfinal. Bad record against Chelmsford, so I, I think I was probably relieved it wasn't them. But St Albans are a good side and they've got one particular player who I've admired for many years, Sean Jeffers, who scored the winner again last night. He scored a fabulous goal against us in the league game. So... I feel confident that we will give 100%. The squad is almost entirely 100% fit. don't think we've got any major issues, perhaps maybe one player. Um, so, yeah, I've got to be really confident that we're going to go on this year. And I'm, from a business perspective, very, very determined that we get back to the National League. From a personal perspective, I live in the North. I want to be in the National League because there'll be so many more local games for me uh, if we do go up. But anyway, from the business point of view, we need to be in the National League to progress further. How ready do you think the club is to be in the the, the higher leagues? Because often yeah. in non-league, it can get to the point where a club's in a, in a higher league than possibly they should be, and they can't afford to be there. They can't run things effectively in that league. I think it's it's going to continue to be tough. You look at the National League as it stands with sides like Wrexham, Notts County, Chesterfield and others um, with huge budgets, massive budgets that we, we can't actually you know, compete with financially. But I think what you have to do is you have to look at other ways in which you, you make uh, the club special for players to play. And this is something we've always had to do because we're not a money side. We're not a money club. Going back to the early days, you know, it might have been just that my coach, Em and Dave, would buy the fish and chips on the coach for the players and feed them. You know, he'd pay for everything out of his own pocket. Not a wealthy man, but just a, an honest, genuine guy. And we all used to do the same. So it was trying to make the players feel special playing for Dartford Football Club. So we've, we're under no uh, illusion that it's, it's not going to be tough because our budget uh, for this season, we're probably sitting somewhere in the, the top half of the table, but near the bottom of that half, if you know what I mean. So somewhere in the 10th, 11th spot. Uh, compared to other clubs who are less successful than us. Uh, I'm not going to name names because I don't want to start bitching about other clubs, but you know there are clubs that have done well on big money and there are clubs that have done really badly on big money. So we've just got to really work hard at making the players feel special, um, attracting players to the club because they know they get paid regularly. There's never a doubt about their, their wages and salary going into their bank account. They looked after on a match day. They looked after on away days. So there's lots of things that you try and do. But we financially, we're, are, are we ready? I think we are. Were we ready 11 years ago? We thought we were. 
but perhaps we weren't. And we survived, well, we survived three seasons. We got relegated in season two, but reprieved. And then we got relegated again. I think then we probably weren't quite ready at the time, but we had to give it a go. This time, I think we're much more ready and willing to give it a go. And I think it's just a case we've got to get there and then survive and and build on, on that survival and stabilise. Speaking about uh, promotion, obviously, there's been a, a, quite a bit of noise about the Wrexham, Notts County, them being so far ahead in the National League and only being one automatic promotion spot. And um, obviously, Dartford are, are, are second in their league. Um, how do you feel about there only being one automatic promotion spot? And um, if a team can come second, they still have to compete in the playoffs to get promoted. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm probably old school. I think uh, I think it should just be one and two go up. Uh, I think you work so hard throughout a season to uh, do what you do and to get there and find that aside five places below you. And I mean, in in, in Notts County's case, is it 25 points between them and seventh place? Um, it's something like that. Yeah, it's it's uh, it, to me quite it's massive. Not I know that the National League are looking to change at the top end the uh, structure. When that comes in, I don't know. But oh uh, yeah, I I understand why they've done it. I understand that it gives more excitement at the end of a season uh, for side to you know either challenging for promotion or challenging to stay away from relegation. But let's just get back to proper proper football and the best sides go up. Um, just a question from me, I suppose, obviously, being a, I suppose, a Dolph supporter for, for 20 odd years now and the club being part of the family for decades, as you know, Steve. Take us back to, to that day in 2012, you know, lean over after four minutes against Welling. How big a moment, you know, was that just, not just for the, for the football club, but for the town in general, winning that playoff final against Welling to, to secure promotion for back to, to the top tier of, of non-league football for, for at least three years? It was absolutely huge. Um, very emotional. Uh, we were a, a club that had kept a side together, the, the nucleus of that side together for many years, starting really in 2008 and building it through each season. Um, and as you know, by 2012, we had six to seven players who played two, three hundred or more games for us and, uh, and, and ultimately went on... Until what, 2018-19 with Elliot Bradbrook, Lee Noble, Danny Harris, you know, guys are at the top end of the historical record charts. Um, it was a it was a tremendous time. I, I, in a way, I, I, I wish we could get back to that because that, when you talk about the finances, that is so special when you've got a nucleus of the side together and keep them together. But it was a great moment. It was a very emotional moment. And, uh, you know, after all the years of, uh, disappointments we'd had previously for all of us that were involved uh, it was a great moment What is the I mean of course without going into specific details but what is the level of difference when a club has to sort of move towards professionalism because of course uh, not in the National League it isn't I don't believe imperative yet but quite a lot in fact I assume the majority of teams uh, have made that change how sort of big an impact would that be? Because, of course, it's not out of the realms of possibility, of course, that Dartford get promoted this year. And is that something you'd be thinking about? Or um, is that still sort of very much a long way away? Um, 
I think the vast majority of the National League at the moment are, they're not full-time. There's this difference between full-time, semi-professional and, uh, and so on. I think there are only two what you call part-time teams in the division this season. Uh, our plans had been to go to a different model, but I think we've decided that uh, at the moment we need to stay where we are, which will be in line with two of those other sides in the division and continue training two nights a week. To go from that to a three or four day model pushes uh, the uh, the income requirement up by about 25 to 30% um, because you're obviously training full time pretty much. Players therefore have lim more limited opportunity to work outside the football club. You have to feed them breakfasts, lunches, medical staff. So it's a huge commitment and we don't feel that uh, we're ready to go and change that model. So we will be carrying on as a, a two-night training uh, model. So we'll see how that goes. So what we like to finish off our episodes of the Sports and Backbone is, is with asking each of our guests as to who they think is the the people who are most underappreciated in the sporting world. Um, so in your experience, who would you say doesn't get the credit they deserve for how much difference they make? Uh, the co-chairman. <laughs> I, I knew this was coming. It's a tough one. And I, I really haven't got the uh, ultimate answer for you. There are so many people that are probably under, underappreciated. I will say for one body of people who perhaps don't get the credit that they deserve, but I try and give them as much credit as often as I can, whether it be at uh, AGMs or at presentations. Our supporters association. I was a member of that supporters association back in the 80s. And they were very underappreciated then. We were because we were told that basically if we caused any more trouble in terms of trying to change the model of the football club, then they would shut the doors and they wouldn't allow the supporters in. They'd play behind closed doors. And as a committee, we work very hard to fundraise um, and so on. That carries on to this day. We have a supporters committee of, I think it's now 12 committee members. And they're pretty much... Um, a second tier of, of, the, of the, a board, let's say, because the work they do is relentless and it's, uh, it just keeps, keeps everybody alive. It keeps the club alive. And, uh, you know, they, they probably, as a body of people, men and women, don't get the credit that they deserve. And I'm sure there are many others. But that's, that's who I would say as a, as a body of people. Thank you very much. Uh, I'll have to agree with you with that. And thank you very much for your time tonight. We really appreciate it. And uh, that's all we've got time for for the fourth okay. episode.